0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15, part of the Sermon on the Mount, page 811 in your pew Bibles. I will ask, if you will, to stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew 6, 5 to 15. Let us stand. your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As you may know, uh, we are in a transition period in which Pastor Charlie is wrapping up our study that we've been doing in Galatians. And meanwhile, I have the opportunity to preach to you uh, once a month here on Sunday mornings. And I have chosen to do, uh, take us in a study called A Praying People. The goal of this study is to grow us as a praying people, which I can't think of anything better for us to, to focus on uh, as we seek to be the people God wants us to be. At this time in the life of Grace Church. So, in that regard, a month ago, about a month ago, on May 19th, I prayed, I preached to you uh, a sermon in which my point was that a praying people know that prayer is speech to God, our Father, to request that his will be done. And today I want to talk to you about detecting uh, toxic. Prayer, and as I shared my title with Pastor Charlie, I kind of confess that the title is not very biblical sounding; it doesn't have biblical words, but maybe it has a little shock value at least uh, in communicating what I want us to think about in a few minutes and in the future, we will come back to this study uh, next month and in August, uh, in which we will consider how a praying people learn to pray from Jesus. Well, uh, as we looked at last month uh, in Luke chapter 11, uh, there was a time in which Jesus was praying and his disciples had observed him praying. And as a result of that particular incident, after they observed him praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, the way John taught his disciples to pray, they had seen that rabbis in general and people like John the Baptist taught their disciples how to pray. And so they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And in that incident, in that moment, he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. We read it just now because that time in Luke 11 was not the first time Jesus had presented this prayer to them. He had presented it to them once before in the Sermon on the Mount. So, this is a retread kind of a lesson. This is a review lesson for them. Perhaps they had been listening and they hadn't thought about how to apply it to themselves. Now, I'd like to point out that learning to pray is not a 15-minute YouTube video. It wasn't then and it isn't now. Uh, Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray over a period of time and he was giving them an example with his own prayer, and he was giving them teachings of various, at various levels about his prayer. He gave them a pattern for prayer in this Lord's Prayer, but he also gave them a parable uh, of prayer in Luke 11. And that, that parable, he particularly emphasized the need to persist in prayer because, one, God is gracious And two, because he gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So as we studied this uh, and asked the question, what is prayer? My point was that prayer, praying people know that prayer is speech to God very simply. And that speech to God is speech to one who is our father. And we pray to him, we speak to him in order that his will may be done. Let's review a little history. First of all, when we go back to the creation, God is the one who spoke first. And he spoke all things into existence. And then he created man. And he spoke to man. God spoke to man and he blessed man. and And man spoke back to God. There was communication. But as you know, along came the serpent who also spoke. And tempted the woman and the man. And they caved in. And they sinned. And then sin and death entered the world. But God, even in that moment, in his mercy, promised deliverance through the seed of the woman. Who would learn. Who we learn would learn is, is none other than God himself. God incarnate. In the Gospel of John, John writes this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of a son full of grace and truth sadly not everyone received the appearance of god in flesh not everyone believed because John goes on to say in chapter 1 of his gospel, he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So those who believed in this incarnate Word, this Son of God, Jesus Christ, were given the privilege of being. God's children. And. It came at great cost to God. Because for him to make sinners, his children, there had to be a payment for sin. Who was going to pay the price? No human being could pay the price because all were in debt. All were debtors to God. So God gave his son as a sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world Jesus came among us he lived a perfect life he kept the law of God perfectly without one failure and then he went to the cross to die for his people his sheep he called them and who are these sheep they are all those who believe in him who trust in him alone for forgiveness and restoration A restoration of that communication with God that was broken so far back there in the garden. So believers who are children of God are also disciples of Jesus. And disciples are people who want to learn how to pray as Jesus did. They pray as children to their father because that is what they are and what he is. If we are his children, we want to speak to him. Because we love Him. And any love relationship requires communication for maintenance, for unity, and for the flourishing of that relationship. God welcomes His children when we, when they pray to Him. And prayer glorifies Him. Well, or it should. Prayer does not require some kind of special formula to be effective. It is simple, rational speech to God, our Creator who speaks to us, and who is the father of those who believe in his son. So it is not hard. It is not complicated. The format that Jesus gave, that is the Lord's prayer, as we call it, he had given before in Matthew, in the passage we read just now. But he included some other points which we will look at today. Because while prayer should glorify God and please him, it doesn't always do that. So praying people learn from Jesus that prayer is simple straightforward conversation with God and it is concerned with his glory and that his will be done. We will look will come back to that beautiful concise prayer in a future sermon but now I would like us to consider some warnings that Jesus made in the sermon on the mount. These warnings are about a problem I call toxic prayer. Not all prayer is good. There are three cases in which prayer can be toxic. Praying people will want to beware of these three cases and heed Jesus' warnings. What do we mean by toxic? I mean by toxic that it does not please God and it does not edify us, that it's sinful, that it's destructive. And so, first of all, uh, praying people replace the toxic prayer of hypocrites with prayer that seeks God's glory. They replace the toxic prayer of hypocrites with prayer that seeks God's glory. Let's look again at verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That Jesus had identified a group of people who used to who used prayer as a means of elevating themselves. We won't mention any names, but their initials are the Pharisees. Uh, they prayed in synagogues, which was to be expected, but they prayed for the purpose of being seen by people. Why was this? Well, they wanted to be seen by others apparently to elevate themselves and so they would not only pray in synagogues but also at street corners in busy intersections and why because that was a good chance that many people would come by and see them now it's important to notice that Jesus did not condemn them for their zeal for prayer but for their intention in prayer what was their motivation anyway why were they doing this It's important that we recognize that God, who is God Almighty and the creator of all things, has made everything for his glory. He is glorified in the works of his creation. Paul wrote in Romans one, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived in all that he has made. He made man and woman in his image to reflect his glory. But mankind has rebelled and people seek their own glory. Sadly, some do this through phony spirituality. It was true in Jesus' day, and we can still find it today at times. Always remember the story of several years ago, many years ago now when I was young. A friend of mine from up north came down south to go to school at a little school in Blacksburg called Virginia Tech. And I guess he'd never been around southerners before because when he got to campus he didn't know anybody and he thought how am i going to find some christian fellowship on this campus so he goes to the dining hall at dinner time and he walks in and he sees all the people eating and he looked across the group and he spotted a guy on the other side of the of the dining hall with his head down in, in fervent prayer and he thought there's my brother and he made a beeline for that table and just as he got to the table The guy raised his head, turned to his friends at the table, and uttered a stream of vulgarities that we can't mention here. My friend made a U-turn really quick and went in the opposite direction. You see, sometimes people can do outward stuff that looks spiritual because it's the thing to do. Uh, I don't think you necessarily see that today so much, but you do see other things. When we hear about scandals among Christian leaders, we have to ask ourselves the question, why in the world are they in the ministry and they're stealing or they're committing uh, sexual sins in their church congregations? Why is that? People living double lives and caught. It's a a mark on the name of Christ um, that ought to be rejected. So, Jesus warned his, deci- his hearers to beware of practicing your righteousness, that is, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, and other things, to be seen by others. In fact, in verse 1 of chapter 6 in Matthew, he said, They will have no reward. They will have no reward from your Father in heaven. To the ones who made a big show of praying, he said, they have received their reward. They get acclaim, but from people, nothing from God. So let me ask you, is, if personal advancement and recognition is your goal in praying, you will not be honored by God. So what is the solution to this? Jesus told them simply this. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Your father's there. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the practice of secret prayer is the test of whether you you pray for show or for God's glory. If we would be praying people, we must develop a vibrant life of secret prayer, which no one but God knows about. He is in secret and he sees in secret. And there is a divine reward for that kind of prayer. Now I need to hasten to say this. Does this mean that we should neglect corporate prayer? Should we not be praying here when we gather? Not at all. Jesus did not condemn the hypocrites for loving to pray in the synagogue. He did not even con- condemn praying on the street corners. He condemned prayer for self-glorification. I urge you, and we urge you to come to prayer meetings, Sunday evenings. Well, not today. Uh, Wednesday noon, Wednesday evening. More about that later. But come with a heart that is set on God's glory. There are many prayer meetings in this church. I don't even know about all of them, and that's fine. I, I, I may they multiply. I hope you're there for some of them at least. I'm. Intrigued by the question of whether these hypocrites were aware of their own sinful attitudes. It doesn't say. Clearly, Satan does not want us to realize it when we sin. He prefers us to feel that we are doing good when we are doing evil. He wants us to love sin and hate righteousness. And if he can't get us to do evil, he will try to get us to do good with a bad attitude that dishonors the Lord. How many times do those outside of the church accuse us of being hypocrites? You know what? Sometimes they're right. So let's be praying people who seek only to honor God and expect no reward in this world. Praying people reject the prayer of hypocrites and seek God's glory alone. Number two. Replace the toxic prayer of Gentiles with prayer informed by a knowledge of the true and living God. Verses 7 and 8, we read this, or verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you need, or knows what you need, before. You ask him. So Jesus next warns about a kind of praying which does not honor God because it is practiced by those who do not know God. Most Gentiles in Jesus' day were unfamiliar with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were strangers to God's covenant with, with his people, his law, his promises to send a Messiah. They didn't know God. They were God's creatures but not God's children by grace through faith in the incarnate word of God. So they did what pagans do. They imagined God to be like themselves. They imagined a God who had power, but only limited power. They imagined a God who needed to be prodded in order to shake him to action. You remember the story of the prophets of Baal and their encounter on Mount Carmel with the prophet Elijah. And the prophets of Baal had that conception of their God, though so they chanted and ranted and cut themselves and did all manner of, of exercises in order to get Baal to respond and send fire on their offering. But Baal did not show up. The Gentiles also used empty phrases, uh, also known as babbling, In many words, in a vain effort to get a response to their petitions from dead idols, Jesus told his disciples that they should not practice that kind of prayer, that we should not practice that kind of prayer before our Father in heaven. What is our God like? What is our God like? The God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is he in any way like the pagan gods who are ignorant and lethargic and must be badgered into action? No, not at all. In fact, I'd like you to look at the shorter catechism, which actually is in your hymnal, but I think it's going to be on the screen in just a minute. The shorter catechism, written about 400 years ago, asked this question. Who is God? There we go. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Shall we read that together? Who is God? God is a spirit, infinite eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Amen. You think that covers it? I don't think you can cover it in those few words, but that's a pretty good stab at it. I think it works uh, pretty well, at least as something you can carry around with you in moments when you are thinking about what God is like. I am comforted much by the thought that God is infinite. There is nowhere I can go away from Him. That He's eternal. There is no time when He's not there. That He's unchangeable. He's perfect. And He's perfect and He's unchangeable and He's eternal and He's infinite in all those seven ways that are mentioned. He is completely a rock that we can count on he will always be there and he will always be good that is loving he'll always be truth he'll always have his power he'll always be just he's always holy never does His being diminish in any way and his wisdom is also there with him in all cases what a glorious thought this is the God that we pray to it blows your mind which should, it should. Now, God does not demean or dehumanize us as pagan gods do. If you've noticed in reading your Old Testament, some uh, worshipers or pagan deities offered human sacrifices to appeal to their gods. Others cut themselves in order to get God's attention. These are things that pagan gods who are no gods, really, do. Years ago in San Francisco, I first ran into the worshipers of Hare Krishna, dressed in their orange robes and standing in the streets, chanting to their God in mindless fashion. The idea was not to think of anything, to think of nothing, and to just babble by the hour. This is demeaning to those made in the image of God. God does not call us to do that. He does not respond to that. He does not honor that kind of prayer. Our God is in the heavens, and he is our Father. And he allows us to come to him confidently using our rational minds and normal speech, English, Tagalog, or Spanish, or whatever. So what is the solution to the toxic prayer of the Gentiles? Well, Jesus at this point gives them the famous prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. It is glorious, and I, as I said, will promise. I promise we will study it in future sermons. But it is not meant to be chanted as the pagans might do. No, it is not meant to be recited thoughtlessly as if we, as if it would bring good luck. Rather, it is given as a pattern of, for prayer. It is full of truth and wisdom which we should keep or we should incorporate into our conversation with God, our Father in heaven. It should be prayed from time to time, not infrequently, but often enough that we know it by heart and it should guide us in all of our prayer because the elements of prayer are all included. Even our worship service this morning follows the pattern of the Lord's prayer. It is short, but it is profound. It seeks God's glory and His great cosmic purposes to be fulfilled. But also, it asks for three basic things that we need from Him. Daily bread. Continual forgiveness. Protection from Satan and from evil. It is written in simple, rational words. I would like to invite you to read the Lord's Prayer with me. And I want to put up the, uh, can you see that? Okay. This is the traditional version of the Lord's Prayer, and it's traditional in the sense that it was the version in the King James Version of the Bible written in 1611. And many of us who are a little uh, gray around the temples will remember you doing this one and maybe growing up. Repeat it with me, if you would. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So when you pray, do not pray like the Gentiles, but pray to our Father who knows your needs before we even ask. Amen. Finally, number three, replace, praying people will replace the toxic prayer of those who refuse to forgive with an attitude of grace and mercy and forgiveness. This prayer that we just prayed, and I heard most of you praying it, we say this, and forgive us our debts, or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus goes on to elaborate on that particular petition of the prayer. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses i have sometimes referred to this as the prayer that everyone prays and no one wants answered forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors really Are you saying that you want God to forgive you only to the extent that you forgive others? I don't think so. We want God's forgiveness to wash over us like a tidal wave. We want it to carry away every trace of guilt and sin, don't we? We want our sin to be taken as far from us as the east is from the west. Never ever to be seen again. We pray like the psalmist, remember not the sins of my youth. Lord, please, please forgive them, forget them forever. But do we extend this kind of abundant grace to others? Think about it. And we need to grasp what this means because Jesus was not saying we earn forgiveness by forgiving others. He is saying that those who are God's children, by no merit of their own, but merely by simple faith in the Savior offered Himself for our sins, those disciples, those children, have been made so new in Him as to naturally practice that kind of forgiveness, the same kind of forgiveness that they have received. In Matthew 18, Jesus told a parable about a servant who owed his master ten. Thousand talents of silver, by the way, that's the equivalent of twenty thousand workers working every day for a hundred years. Do the man he begged for time to pay that a, a, enormous amount, promising to make good on the debt instead, his master completely forgave the debt. That servant then immediately went out and found a fellow servant who owed him three months wages. One person, three months. The fellow servant also begged for time to pay, but the first servant refused and had him thrown into prison for the debt. Jesus said the king heard about what happened and he summoned the forgiven man and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The scariest verse in the Bible, in my opinion is James 2:13. It says this, Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But James adds this phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. Indeed, when Christ hung on the cross offering himself, mercy triumphed over judgment. And we rejoice in that. As Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. But does God's mercy toward you triumph over your judgment of others who are your debtors? Let us reject the toxic prayer of a person who demands mercy from God but shows no mercy to others. As we seek to be a praying people, let us reject the toxic prayer of the hypocrites who sought their own glory, not God's, their own kingdom, not his. Let us reject the ignorant prayer of the Gentiles who thought of God, small g, as their genie to be manipulated and coerced, not worshiped and obeyed. Let us reject the self-righteous prayer of the unforgiving who refuse to forgive even minor offenses while attempting to grasp the riches of grace in Christ Jesus. In summary, I urge you to consider what God calls you to do. Three things. Seek God's glory alone in prayer, both secretly and corporately. That is, make diligent use of the means of grace, worship, church prayer meetings, and so forth. Second, Pray to Him as your Father with simple, biblically informed words and childlike trust. Forgive from the heart as you have been forgiven. If we do, we will rid ourselves of toxic prayer and bring God the glory He deserves. And we will be a praying people. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we We pray for forgiveness. We have stood here and looked at your word. And we've been reminded of our prayerlessness. We've been reminded of our sinful prayers. And we ask your forgiveness for these things. We ask you to forgive us for seeking our own glory. For seeking our own will. For selfishly refusing to forgive. And may we be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. Amen.